I'm sure you've all had this experience where you uh, watch um, a 30-second news clip online or on the news, and you see and you hear what happened. And after the 30-second clip, commentators will be invited to tell you what you saw. And you may hear or listen to two or three or four over the next half hour, at the end of which you don't know what you saw. You don't know what you heard. Actually, you do know what you saw and you do know what you heard, but you don't know how to understand it. Should I spin it left? Or was the fellow who spun it right? Or up or down? There are many ways we can see of how we could understand one experience. The, the image I, or the metaphor I use is if you took the local weather person on your TV station, male or female, and, and you took them with Salvador Dali when he was still living to watch the sunset out here tonight, and you didn't see it, and they both watched the sunset. And then they came in here to tell you what they each saw. And the weather person would use their language and their imagery and their vocabulary. And Salvador Dali would do something else. <laughs> and you might not recognize that they were talking about the same experience. Right? Okay. Our life is a lot like this. Since the time of our birth, we have been experiencing this thing called a human life. Well, even before that, in the womb, we're experiencing this thing called a human life. And our, beginning with our parents and other primary caregivers, they have, you know, informed us how to understand what we're experiencing. This is good, this is bad, don't do that, do this, etc., etc. And our parents, and caregivers, they passed us on to aunts and uncles and peers and neighbors and friends and babysitters and the school system and the government system and religious leaders and others, too numerous to mention, who have been telling us how to understand our life, how to make the best use of this human life, how to, how to be happy, a lot of them, And one thing that is pretty obvious from our own personal experience is we haven't got it right yet. Because, well, um, we still suffer. We still uh, are confused. We still have to get caught in uh, emotional dramas that are painful because we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand others. And so it was something like this that prompted the Bodhisattva to really try to understand suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering and to articulate upon his awakening his understanding. So as the Buddha spoke about what he understood 
he articulated it in what are called Four Noble Truths, and the uh, wisdom element of the Four Noble Truths is called right view and right thought. Now, right in the terms of the Buddhist teaching doesn't necessarily mean a metaphysical right or wrong. It's right meaning that which leads to the end of suffering. It's either non-suffering or it leads to the end of suffering. Wrong in that sense means it leads to more suffering for yourself and or others. So when the Buddha talked about right view, he's talking about how to understand this human life, the experiences of this human life in a way that, well, leads to less suffering and maybe even the end of suffering. And we know that if we don't understand correctly, if we understand wrongly, we can perpetuate our suffering and the suffering of others. So tonight I want to speak about um, right views or skillful views or the views that emerge from natural awareness, which is what we're practicing here. Sayadaw Tejaniya says that the right views of the Dharma are to inspire and motivate us to try to capture and build upon the elusive thread of wisdom that draws us into meditation practice in the first place. Bringing both awareness and wisdom to each moment in a continuous and sustained way will allow nature to take over, with the only effort required being a genuine interest in seeing what meditation can uncover and bring to our lives. So he's pointing to this practice being really the, the effort to be interested in this human life. We're all human. He, he's a human. The Buddha was a human. And we're offered, you know, a template and a palette of understandings of what this human life is all about. And if you look at the condition of people, the environment, other animals on the face of the earth, there's a tremendous amount of suffering going on. Maybe we don't have it right yet. Maybe. Or maybe this is just the way it has to be. But we should find out for ourselves if the suffering that we experience is mandated just by the very fact of being human, or if it's conditioned and caused by some wrong understanding of our experience as a human being. So this practice is to pay attention with interest to what occurs in the body, in the mind, in our relationship to each other, and to the environment, so that we can begin to understand, see for ourselves, and understand this and these conditions lead to suffering. This and those conditions lead to the end of suffering. And to know this for ourselves, to see, to observe, to understand our own experience in this way. And this is what the, the Buddha empowered us to do. Here is the practice to do it. It's not 
you know, this, this practice is not primarily a, um, a belief system. It's not like you can read the book, or any book, all the books, and uh, agree with what the Buddha or Buddhist teachers have written and free your heart, free your mind from cause of suffering and the, su- and the causes of suffering. Belief, belief through the acquisition of knowledge doesn't do it. It actually has to be rediscovered within our own heart. Shweyu Min Sayadaw, who is Sayadaw Tejaniya's teacher, he says, we meditate to develop right view. This cannot be achieved by the ego. Meditation must proceed naturally by watching any experience just as it is. This is the way to develop right view. So, in the Buddha's articulation of what he understood to be the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the path to be developed for each one of us to realize the end of suffering, the path of practice to be developed essentially consists of three trainings. A training in sila, which we're doing here with the precepts, sila being learning to live in harmony with ourselves and with others, and to undertake the precepts as a practice to develop our own heart and mind requires mindfulness. We need to remember to recognize the present moment's experience when we're about to speak and about to act and to check our attitude of mind. Is this intention to speak or act motivated by attachment and greed? Is it motivated by aversion and hatred and irritation or impatience? Is it motivated by confusion, bewilderment, fantasy? Or is it rooted in compassion, understanding, generosity, love? And that's the practice of sila. Now, we can say, oh, it's a training to refrain from, you know, uh, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. And for for the most part, we're not acting out in a really dangerous or harmful way. But, you know, when you pay attention to your heart now, after the fact of speaking and acting for the past few decades, you'll notice or you'll recall you will remember, you'll see that there's this personal history review going on sometimes and what appears in our mind now is things we said and did or that were said and done to us a long time ago. And maybe we didn't feel the suffering then, but we do now. So it's important that we understand that what we are experiencing, what we're re-experiencing from the past is not because we're not practicing right, not because we're somehow dredging up painful experiences, but rather it's that we see, confirm for ourselves. oh yeah, acting like that, speaking like that, 
really causes my heart to contract for my to, to suffer and so we can learn from every moment's experience even if it's very painful as they often are just because we experience unpleasantness or pain doesn't mean that we're bad or wrong it means that we have an opportunity to learn through our own observation through our own understanding how to suffer less The second training of the Eightfold Path is the development of what's called samadhi. It's a momentary, temporary, but it can be an enduring purification of the mind from obsessive thinking. Do you notice any of that today? Obsessive wanting, desire, scheming, strategizing, judging, impatience. Frustration, disappointment, oh, the, the list is endless. But we get caught in these obsessive states of mind. And it's because we have, you know, really cultivated this state of mind as a strategy for dealing with some kinds of situations in life. Now we have this habit of getting frustrated, getting disappointed, being impatient, being angry. And somehow, even though we would like to not suffer in that way, the force of habit is so strong that just wanting it to be otherwise isn't sufficient. Even seeing the, you know, the kind of the unskillfulness of it, that belief, isn't sufficient. It takes more than that to free our mind from these painful habits. Again, this is through and is accomplished through awareness. Mindful awareness of these states of mind. How we suffer with them. Development of mindfulness. Learning how to calm the mind. Learning how to be more at ease with the nature of every experience. Pleasant or unpleasant. And the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path is the practice of wisdom or the development of understanding through Vipassana, which is what we're doing here also. I'll have more to say about it later in the talk, and then you'll hear more about it during the retreat. But this right views that the Buddha talks about as being so important to understand or to come to upon ourselves is not easy. The Buddha spoke about right views a lot and one time there were some monks who were discussing right views and they had some questions so they asked Sariputta who was second to the Buddha in wisdom about these, their understanding of right views and they said we've heard about right views we understand they're important but how do we actually get them? How do we, how do we acquire these right views? And Sariputta said there are two, two elements to acquiring right view for ourselves. Now remember, right view is what allows you to suffer less. And the first is, we need to hear right view from someone else. We need to hear what the right view is from someone else. Well, we're all, we're all educated people. We're bright. We're not stupid. Uh, we've, we've, 
we've gone through our educational system, and which is a lot of problem solving. We know how to solve problems. We know how to look at situations and figure out strategies and useful, skillful ways of resolving difficulties. And so when we hear someone say, no, you can't figure this out. You, you, you cannot figure out your human suffering. You need to hear it from somebody else. It can challenge our sense of autonomy and efficacy and intelligence. But we've, we've learned how to accept right views from others. You know, if we stayed here long enough, we'd see, you know, the sun just set. In a few hours, it's going to rise over there. And it's going to go overhead. And it's going to set over there again. We might not see it. It might be cloudy. But nevertheless, we know, this, we know the story. Rise over there, go overhead, set over there. From our own direct observation, right, we would have to say, the sun circles the earth. We don't, we, from, from that observation, we don't have any other way to understand it. But that's not right, is it? There have been those who have studied more than the way the sun goes around the earth, which it doesn't, but they've studied other heavenly bodies up there, and they've said, no, it's not the sun that goes around the earth. Actually, the earth goes around the sun, and it takes a year. And it's the spinning of the earth on its axis that creates the day and night. And we've been told that. We've all been told that. And we've all been tested on it, and we all passed the test. Meaning, we now believe it, right? Although, unless you're an astronomer, you have not been able to confirm it for yourself. So we shouldn't be so quick to say, oh no, I'm going to figure it out for myself because we might not have the, well, might not have all the data that's needed to figure it out. But the Buddha did. So the Buddha is sharing his understanding of having observed this human life, all of life, over and over again, and sharing it with us. So that when we practice, it's not that we need to believe it, we just need to hear it. And the second element of acquiring right view is that we develop wise attention. Hear right view and develop wise attention. Wise attention is what we're doing here with practicing awareness. So I want to speak about some of these uh, right views, the right views of Dharma, the right views of meditation, the right views of insight, the right views of concentration, the right views of liberation. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, but it's also an articulation of the truth the truth of, oh, this is the way it is. Because if we're able to come into awareness of and understand the way it is, the way things have come to be, then we have a choice. We can either choose to live in alignment with the way things are, or we can choose to live out of alignment with the way things are. And we know which way is going to lead to suffering, in which way is going to lead to less suffering. Right? So when we hear the Dharma, it is pointing to, or when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, it is pointing to the way things have come to be. 
the way things are. So that when we develop wise attention, we can see for ourselves: is this a skillful way of understanding what I'm experiencing? So we experience sensations in the body, thoughts in the mind, emotions in the heart. What is a skillful way of understanding these? So that we, well, suffer less. The other experience or the other meaning of the word dhamma is your personal experience moment to moment is a dhamma. Because that's the way it is. That's the way things have come to be in your experience for now. And it's important to understand that that experience is all there is in this moment. And if we can find a way to uh, understand this moment and the next moment and the next moment, then we will suffer less. That's taking refuge in the Dharma taking refuge in our personal experience, whether it's painful, whether we understand it, whether it's gross or subtle, physical or mental, emotional, because we have all of those experiences. That's how it's come to be for us at different times. So when we study or when we practice the Dhamma, we're practicing being with this body in mind. We could say that we're becoming scientists of this human condition. We're, we're observing this body and this mind, moment to moment, just trying to, to gather the data that will help us understand the way things are, the way things have come to be. So that we could say that all that occurs in the body and the mind is natural. It's nature. It, is, it, it arises due to causes and conditions. It's not accidental. It's not miraculous. It's not kind of woo-woo-wow-wow, somehow, poof. Things happen due to causes and conditions. Now, we may not understand all the causes and conditions that come into play in this moment. But if we understand that the Dharma is an articulation of the way things are, and we're paying attention to the way things are, there's causes and conditions for all of this that we experience. And one of the ways that the Buddha talked about it is that everything we experience is conditioned. This body is conditioned by, well, the temperature, the weather, the food we eat, genetics. It's conditioned by what's going on around us. This mind, so too, also conditioned by genetics, conditioned by what we experience, how we understand it, what we listen to, what we read, everything. It only takes one really dramatic event in your life to condition your heart, your mind, profoundly. And we ex we're exposed to dramatic events all the time. <clears throat> so we can say that the continuity, I mean the conditionality, the way we experience our life, our body and mind, is conditioned by mostly what is outside of our immediate control. We don't get to control other people. We don't get to control the weather. We didn't get to pick our parents. We didn't get to choose our education, all of it. Okay, so, well, we just have to live with this conditioning in the form of our mind and body. So we're studying the mind and body, understanding that we are observing 
the laws of nature in action. One of them, one of these whole areas of the laws of nature is the biological laws of nature. We are heir to the biological laws of nature. We're not free of it. We have to live within the bounds of the biology and the basic, you know, the, the first law of biology is what is born, lives for a while, and dies. Got to deal with that. Who we are, how we are, is conditioned by genetics. You know, and the genetics of plants is pretty obvious. If you have an apple seed and you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. If you have a banana seed, do bananas have seeds? Okay, how about um, oranges? Uh, if you have an orange and you plant an orange seed, you're not going to get a pear tree. This is just the law of nature, okay? So we too, our genetics, the way, what's going on in this body and some of the preconditions we have and the vulnerabilities this body has to get sick, to grow old, eventually die, completely out of our control, almost completely out of control. Or let's say the genetics condition a significant part of it. The other, another law of nature is the physical laws of nature. You know, the chemical, bio, uh, chemical and physical laws that govern the unfolding of the universe. One of them being the laws of gravity. You know, the law of gravity, nobody made the law of gravity. It, just, it is, this is the way it is. It was observed and understood and articulated and now we have this understanding of the law of gravity. Now you don't have to believe it, but if you don't live in alignment with it, you, you might suffer, right? Okay, so that's, that's why we talk about the laws of nature because if we live in alignment with them, we suffer less. If we just kind of act willy-nilly uh, according to our own wishes, well, we may be inviting some suffering. So Western science has for a long time studied the physical laws, the biological laws of nature. But the Buddha had spent many lifetimes looking at and eventually articulating the laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. The laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. Western science is just now beginning to, to study this. Some of the neuroscientists are, are doing some great work, doing some research on the mind and getting all their, getting many of their ideas for what to test and what to measure from, well, Buddhist monks. Because they have, they have this understanding. So some of the laws of nature of the unfolding of the mind include why it is, how it is that we have the kind of personality traits that we do. Where did we get, where did we get this personality? Well, yeah, of course, since we were born, we've been, you know, acting and reacting and responding different ways and habits have formed and now they're pretty well set. But for those of you who either have had children or have been around children when they're very young or just out of the womb, it doesn't take long to, for them to start expressing their personality. Long before they learn anything from mom and dad and, and others around the world. Where did this... Where did this mind come from? This little package of joy that emerged into the world, right? Well, the Buddha said, well, it came from, you know, a mental legacy from previous lives. You don't have to believe it. 
but that there's a mental legacy that we each are heir to. You know, both the wholesome, skillful qualities of understanding and patience and generosity. And you may, you may recognize that you or others you know have a very, just an inherent uh, capacity to be loving, generous, patient, or not. <laughs> some of us don't, don't have those. Or we may some 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 of us have a, a more reactive uh, state out of uh, a habit of aversion, and some more strongly are in the attachment types. These the Buddha said, due to previous actions. Previous actions, and we'll feed them. We'll feed those habits in this lifetime. That's just one. The law of karma is another mental law, which you know. Different societies and different religions have had some sense of, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and what you see, what you sow, so shall you reap. Karma is, you know, if you act out of a skillful state of mind, the result will be pleasant. If you act out of an unskillful state of mind, the result will be unpleasant. It's not like anybody's punishing you. This is just the way it is. You know, if you throw a ball in the air, really hard, and then you forget about it, you stand around, when it comes down, you might think, hey, who did that? Who, who caused that ball to hit me? Forgetting that you did that. You, you, you planted the seed for that result, but you forgot it. So, this is how the law of karma works. So these are some of the laws that were pointed out by the Buddha that can help us as we approach our bodies and our minds and what we're experiencing. Now I want to speak about meditation a little bit because there's a lot of different kinds of meditation. You know, and many of you have tried many different kinds of meditation. So I just want to kind of parse it out a little bit so we can understand what it is we're doing here that's similar or different or how they, how they might work. Essentially, or maybe I should say, basically, there are two kinds of meditation. There are the kinds of meditation that lead to some tranquility, calming the mind, uh, calming, taming restlessness uh, by directing your attention to an experience. It can be the breath, it can be a color, it can be a flame, it can be a sound, it can be whatever it is, but sending your mind, your attention to this object over and over again, just as, as continuously as you can. Send your mind there, send your mind there, send your mind there. And at time, in time, the momentum of your intention and the mind's going to the object becomes so strong, so powerful, so unwavering that, well, there's no opportunity for anything else to get into the mind. No worry, no restlessness, no desire, no frustration, no impatience can get in because the mind is going to your chosen object. This is a method of meditation that we're all familiar with. The other kind, and this leads to tranquility. And as long as you keep doing that practice, it can, you can be quite calm and quite tranquil. And if you've developed it well, you can reaccess it pretty quickly. The other kind of meditation is the kind of meditation that leads to wisdom. 
or understanding. And for this, we don't send our mind to one object in order to calm down, but rather in time, we learn to open our attention to all experience, all experience, physical, mental, inner, outer, pleasant, unpleasant, subtle, gross. We learn to open our attention, feel into each moment, and learn how to understand this experience, how to be with this experience in a way that we're not pushing it away out of aversion and we're not attaching to it out of clinging and desire. And we're clear, this is the way it is. We're not confused, we're not uh, deluded, we're not making up something about this, we see it clear-eyed. And when we understand things in this way, we're neither repulsed or attracted to or attached to anything. This understanding leads to freedom. So you can see that there's two different kinds of meditation. One that leads to calming the mind down and one that leads to wisdom, understanding, or liberation. General, general categories. In any event, in every moment, something is being known. In every moment, the mind is knowing something. This is what the mind does. The mind knows and the mind thinks. This is what it does. Now you might think, yeah, but when I'm sleeping, well, you know, when you're, when you're sleeping, the mind is still knowing dreams and what's going on around you. It's, it's monitoring things. You might not be aware of it, but that also happens, well, today while you're sitting here in the hall. You know, with all of our best intentions to try to be aware, sometimes the mind wanders off into a train of thought. And while we're lost in that train of thought, we don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know when we started thinking about it. We don't know where this thinking is going. We don't know how we feel about it. We don't know what posture we're in. We don't know our age, our gender. We don't know if we're inside or outside. We don't know if we like it or not. We don't know our name. We don't, we don't know anything. I mean, I hate to say it, but that is pretty ignorant. Not your, I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm just saying we're ignorant. We don't, we don't know anything. And yet, sometimes when that train of thought comes to an end, you can remember everything you were just thinking about. Right? Okay. The mind was knowing that all the time. But you weren't aware of it. Huh. Right? Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, it's interesting to me because what was I doing? What was I doing? I mean, really, what was I doing with all those thoughts, all those fantasies, all those plans, all those memories? Well, what we're doing there is reaffirming all of the conditioning we receive from our parents and others. As wrong as it might be, we just keep going over the same old beliefs, same old assumptions, and reaffirming them. So we can't say that just wandering blindly in the mind is skillful. It's not skillful. It's not paying attention in a way that's going to reveal the truth to us. It's just going to reaffirm the assumptions and wrong views that we've heard from others. Awareness practice, another right view, is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. It's not about creating some kind of special meditative experience. 
And it's not about avoiding any kinds of experiences. But it's about huh, just remembering to recognize whatever is happening. I know that's hard to believe. But it is. Now, when we do that, we don't need to kind of glom on to the experience and say, oh, poor me, I'm caught in this anger, this frustration, this disappointment, this desire. Or neither do we want to say, oh, wow, this is so good. I'm really doing, it's so quiet, it's so calm, I'm so peaceful. But rather, just to be aware that in every moment something is being known. What is being known, as you know, is going to change, isn't it? It's been changing all day. You know, the breath, a thought, a sound, pain, pleasure, all kinds of emotions, all kinds of thoughts, just going by. Steady stream. In mindfulness practice, we're not cultivating continuity of object. We're not cultivating a continuity of a sound or a color or even the breath. But what we're doing is cultivating continuity of awareness on changing objects. The field of our practice is our own body and mind. What's going on here? It's not primarily looking out there at what you've read or each other or the events that are going on around you in the, in the environment, but it's really looking at how is this mind and body experiencing this moment? When we do that, we'll see where we're identified, how we suffer, how we don't suffer. And we're not, it's not about confirming what others have said about reality out there. We're not looking to confirm any view of reality except our own experience. This is how it is for me for now. That's what's important. Because in that, how you relate to this present moment will determine for you whether you suffer or not. Right? The Buddha gave a short discourse, I've heard, and in it he said something to this effect. Everyone only experiences six things. That's, that was it. That's the discourse. Uh, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, and thinking. Did you experience anything besides that today? I mean, thinking covers a lot. Sensations, touch sensations, that covers a lot. But that's it. You, you would think that if we only had to recognize six different experiences, we'd have it done, but we, we'd get it under control by now, right? It's hard, isn't it? Now, the only difference between those who practice and those who don't practice, they're all experiencing just six things. But those who are practicing awareness know that they are experiencing what they're experiencing. And those who are just experiencing it, but not practicing, they don't know what they're experiencing. I know that sounds kind of strange. You know, in, in a, a book I read recently, someone asked the teacher, but doesn't, doesn't a dog know that it's chewing a bone? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the dog knows it's chewing a bone. 
don't you know that you're walking down the street when you're walking down the street? I mean, if, you know, if somebody asked you, do you know that you're walking down into the dining, into the dining hall when you get up from here and walk into the dining hall? If somebody said, do you know, do you know you're walking to the dining hall? You'd look at them like they were a little bit loose, a little bit. <laughs> but actually, were you actually aware of walking into the dining room? Were you aware that the foot was moving and what it was, what you were feeling in the body and the thoughts that were going through in the mind and what you were feeling for sensations in the body? Not really. Mostly we're just thinking. We're aware, I'm going to the dining room. We're thinking that, but we're not actually experiencing it. So in this practice, we want to come out of the narrative of what I'm doing and into the experience of what I'm doing and know that. So as I said, we're not trying to cultivate a particular kind of experience or a single object of experience. Um, We're not trying to stay with the breath for long periods of time. We're not even trying to sit still for a long period of time. But if the body's still, we'll notice that. If the body's restless, well, we'll notice that. If we're paying attention to the breath sometimes, we'll notice that. And if we're not, we'll also notice that. So that awareness, this awareness is the work of the mind. So we're cultivating the awareness in this practice rather than cultivating the object. And the difference is that the objects don't define the quality of our practice. You can have all kinds of objects and still be pretty mindless. But what we're interested in cultivating is the quality of our awareness of objects. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the right views of insight practice. Because what we're doing is we're cultivating awareness. This is mindfulness, which is the remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. But just like that newscast on TV or on the, on the web, we see what's going on. Mindfulness sees what's going on. But how do we understand it so that we suffer less? So this is the practice of Vipassana that I want to talk about. Because this willing, open, receptive, uh, patient, interested attitude of mind gathers data. We're paying attention to everything that's going on in our mind and our body. We're just gathering data. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. Okay. And in time, we'll have enough knowledge, we'll have observed enough to begin to understand, oh, this is the way it is. You know, if you didn't know, let's see, what do we have for animals around here that you might see? I'm not sure. But let's say there's some deer here. I know there are deer around here. Say you'd never seen a deer before. I was recently in Australia playing with some kangaroos. I don't get to watch kangaroos that often. They're cute little buggers, but they're different than deer. Okay, so how do you, how do you know the nature of a deer? If you wanted to learn the nature of a deer, how would you do that? Well, I know. You'd go online, you'd Google it, you'd find Wikipedia and see what it says, and, and, and you'd learn what other people know about deer. 
But you don't know anything about deer yet. You just know what other people know. That gives you an idea. That's not kind of like maybe getting some right views, maybe some wrong views. And then you find a deer and you watch it. There's one place where I teach and the deer are around a lot at this, uh, this meditation center. So you can just stand there and watch them and they just kind of browse and they, you know, eat this and they don't eat that and they wiggle their ears this way and they move their tail that way and they take care of their young this way and they don't do that. And do deer drink water? They drink water at the pond or do they get the moisture off the leaf? Well, I don't know, really. I, I don't know yet. Maybe I'll have to watch more closely. But if you just keep watching, you don't have to figure it out. You don't have to have any plan or study plan or agenda. You just observe. You just watch. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. You're not saying, this is good. Oh, the deer shouldn't be doing that. The deer should be doing this. You know, it's like, come on, do it my way. No, you're just saying, huh, this is the way it is. This is the nature of deer. Huh, okay. Well, at the end of the day, if you could keep up with the deer, you would know a lot about the nature of a deer, wouldn't you? Just from observing. Even if you didn't know anything else before that. Not because anybody told you, not because you read it, not because you need somebody else to, to tell you what you just saw and understood. You would have an understanding from your own empirical experience. Right? Well, that's what we do with this body and mind. We just say, well, I wonder what's going on here. And we just look. And we don't say, okay, body, do what I want you to do. <laughs> you be comfortable, because I don't like it when you're uncomfortable. Well, you can tell your body that, but <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't listen. Right? So all we're doing is just learning to observe without judgment, just whatever arises in this body and mind. And we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to have any agenda to make it this way or to make it that way or to not or to prevent it from being this way or to prevent it from being that way. We just want to see, oh, this is the way it is. Huh. You know, if we just have that kind of interest and if we can sustain that kind of interest, even with unpleasant experiences or unfamiliar experiences or things that we don't like about our mind or our body, you just watch it. You just watch. Oh, this is the way it is. In time, you will have gathered enough data to understand more than you do now. Not because somebody told you, not because you looked it up, but because you had this, your own experience of this body. So, for example, you know, when we notice that we're suffering, when we're caught in suffering, you know, sadness arises or loneliness arises or frustration arises or you know blaming somebody arises and when we get caught in that obsessive narrative i'm so sad because blah 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 and it goes on and we suffer or i'm so disappointed blah 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 what's actually going on there is when we are caught in the narrative like i am whatever we're suffering. We, we don't know, we may not know we're suffering, we're just kind of, just being suffering. But sometimes we have a little bit of awareness and we start thinking about our suffering. Well, I'm so sad because they said this and I said that and this person did and I didn't do and I didn't get a chance and I'm so sad. 
So we're thinking about our suffering. And the third way of potentially being with and learning about suffering is to be mindfully aware of it. Now being mindfully aware is not just being caught in suffering, I am suffering, and it's not just thinking about your suffering or sadness. It's being able to step back and observe that suffering just like it's a deer. Huh, this is what suffering does. This is what it feels like in the body. These are the kind of thoughts it has. Huh, this is the way frustration is. This is the nature of anger. This is the nature of impatience. This is the nature of, what else did you get caught in today? It has its own nature. It's not you. It's not yours. It's not who you are. It arises due to causes and conditions, most of which you don't control. If we pay attention, we will learn the causes and conditions that give rise to my suffering. And this is the way we begin to disentangle my suffering from, oh, the nature of suffering. Experiencing suffering is suffering. Understanding suffering is liberating. The Buddha said, when asked, those who are wise have asked a lot of questions, not necessarily of the teachers, but of themselves, inquiring into how it is for them in this moment, over and over again. Mark Epstein, uh, colleague of ours who both understands Western psychology and Buddha Dharma, he wrote, as the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. If we try instead to just change our emotional reaction, we may achieve some short-term success, but we remain bound by the forces of attachment and aversion to the very feelings which we're trying to escape. Well, let me put this in English. Uh, when we get caught in, um, let's, let's take anger. Something comes up, you get caught in impatience or anger, or irritation, and you got the story going on, and you just, they said this, I said that, I shouldn't have done this, they shouldn't have done that. I'm so, wow, I'm really caught. I think I'll do some loving kindness. So we have this thought, I'll do some loving kindness. May you be happy. May I be happier. May, may you be happy elsewhere. May I be happy all the time. You know, what? You know, I'm just exaggerating. But we do, we know, I mean, a lot of us have learned how to do metta as an antidote to aversion of one form or another. And if you know how to do it well, you can get some immediate or pretty quick relief, right? You can just calm the mind down, kind of turn your mind towards loving kindness and away from the source of, and the narrative of anger, irritation, and you have some relief. Ah, oh, there. 
Okay, that momentary, temporary, we call it uh, kind of uh, circumstantial relief. But the source of the suffering is still within the heart. The pain that you felt is just covered up with that, that, that loving kindness. And instead, you know, the, the cause, the misunderstanding, the wrong ways of seeing the situation that led to you using the strategy of anger and patience is still there. We still understand the situation wrongly. And it is only through insight practice that we're able to understand that situation correctly. So what would, how would insight practice treat that situation different? Insight practice, awareness practice would say, oh, anger has arisen, impatience has arisen. Wow, what is the nature of this thing? What is the nature of impatience? What is the nature of anger? What is the nature of whatever it is you're looking at? And would feel into it and would spend time with it, would observe it like a deer in the forest, or maybe a snake in the forest, (laughs) would observe it to understand it, not to get rid of it, not even to figure it out, but to just observe. This is the way it is. In time, there would be enough data, we would acquire enough data about the nature of this suffering state of mind to see the pain underneath it, to see the sense of self that is conditioned that gives rise to the sufferer, the one who suffers. And in time, we would see through that conditioned sense of self. Suffering and the end of suffering. By going into or by feeling into and coming to understand the nature of suffering, we can be free of it. Not just temporarily free, but liberated from. We can realize the truth. This is the difference. This is where, this is the direction of awareness practice for insight. Vipassana practice always steps back to see things more clearly, Sayadaw Tejaniya says, whereas tranquility practice just dives in and gets absorbed in the object or the experience. Stepping back and watching allows understanding to arise. Being aware intelligently will help you to deepen your practice, to come to new understandings. Ultimately, it will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insights. So this is what we're developing here. This natural awareness, this awareness that is just willing and able to be with the way things are in this moment. Whether it's pleasant, Unpleasant, physical, mental, emotional, familiar, novel, subtle, gross. Whatever arises in your experience that calls your attention. Can we have this kind of interest to learn about it in order to be free of it? This is what you want to ask yourself. This is the kind of attitude of mind that you want to cultivate interest to understand because 
This is your life. This is not rehearsal for anything. This is it. You know, moment to moment. We don't get a chance to live it over. This is it. Are we interested in this human experience enough to pay attention? This is the practice. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.